Welcome to Critical Value, the podcast from the Urban Institute that explores issues of significance for research, policy, and people. I'm your host, Justin Milner. Last December, right before the holidays and the government shutdown, a really big thing happened on Capitol Hill. But if you weren't paying attention, you might have missed it. The Senate overwhelmingly passed a criminal justice reform bill on Tuesday night, delivering a bipartisan win for President Trump. The First Step Act, as it is known, would change sentencing laws, establish more early release programs, and expand job training meant to reduce recidivism. This is history. This is history. Right now, you're witnessing history on the floor of the U.S. Senate. It is a Christmas miracle underway where, for the first time in a generation, Republicans and Democrats are Mm -hmm. arm in arm tonight saying, We are sending too many people to prison. They're coming out bitter and not better. We want to make a tremendous difference. Working together with my administration over the last two years, these members have reached a bipartisan agreement on prison reform legislation known as the first step. And that's what it is. It's a first step, but it's a very big first step. The First Step Act, passed into law on December 19th, is significant for a lot of reasons. For one, it's the first major criminal justice reform legislation to pass in nearly a decade. And it passed with bipartisan support and the backing from a surprising collection of bedfellows. Advocates from the Koch brothers to the ACLU were backing the bill. So what exactly is the First Step Act all about and why should we care? To answer these questions, I sat down with researchers Nancy Levine and Julie Samuels from our Justice Policy Center. And I spoke by phone with Matthew Charles in Nashville, Tennessee. Matthew has spent years studying sentencing law and is one of the first people to be released from prison thanks to the First Step Act. But first, a bit of background on the problem. Here's Nancy. The federal prison system has grown astronomically in the last several decades. Um, It used to house uh, just a fraction of people around 25,000 people. And today, uh, it's just shy of 200,000. It's declined a bit uh, in that during that recent years, but does not show any sign of really declining absent some kind of meaningful reform. The reason for that astronomical growth was a policy shift in the 1980s toward harsher punishments for drug crimes. Around the 1980s or so, there was the the crack epidemic, spike in crime in communities nationwide, and Congress felt the need to be responsive and chose to respond by imposing these very high sentences and mandatory minimums, and also the stacking of uh, offenses resulting in terms of confinement um, upwards of 20, 25, even 35 years, including life in prison. These increasingly punitive sentences for drug-related offenses were one of the main drivers of the growth in the federal prison system. It really flipped the scenario in terms of the percentage of people who were convicted of federal crimes who ended up even getting prison time. And all these provisions also imposed very, very lengthy sentences. Um, This is primarily for people convicted of drug offenses, but also had to do with people who had any kind of weapons involved in their offenses. In the 1990s, there was an effort to reform the federal prison system, specifically around mandatory minimum sentences for crack versus powder cocaine. 
At the time, people convicted of selling crack were punished way more harshly than people convicted of selling powder cocaine. One of the drivers of the long sentences was the imposition of mandatory minimums associated with crack cocaine offenses. And as you may be aware, there's a disparity between people convicted of crack cocaine versus powder cocaine that was really egregious in in the original uh, sentencing bills passed in the 1980s. There was a correction for that through the Fair Sentencing Act to equal that disparity, uh, although it didn't make it completely comparable. It went from something like 1 to 100 to 1 to 18, but that was only applied prospectively. And so a lot of people are languishing behind bars with these unequal sentences based on the type of substance. And of course, that is, has imposed some really racially disparate impacts on people housed in the federal prison system. And that brings us to the First Step Act. One of the new law's key components is that it makes the 2010 Fair Sentencing Act fully retroactive for people in federal prison who were sentenced under the older, more punitive law. Here's Julie on what that means. Those people who are in federal prison for crack offenses, where the sentences for crack were previously reduced, now have the opportunity to petition the court and be released as if they were sentenced under the new regime. And according to the U.S. Sentencing Commission, they estimate that there are about 2,500 or so people in BOP who have the potential for benefiting from this retroactive provision. One of them is Matthew Charles. Matthew has a remarkable story. He was sentenced to 35 years in prison in 1996 on drug and weapons charges. After serving 20 years, he petitioned for early release under the Fair Sentencing Act, and in 2016, a judge granted him. But two years after his release, prosecutors appealed that decision, arguing that a mistake had been made and the law did not apply to him. So in 2018, Matthew returned to prison to finish out his sentence. Then everything changed with the passage of the First Step Act. Hey, Mike, you ready for this, Mr. Charles? I'm like, oh, my goodness, what is it now? And so they was like, Judge Stronger find you with me to release, saying time served, you going home. And I was like, I mean, it just, well, I, I mean, it's a feeling that's inexpressible in words, but she was like, we're going to try to get you out here today, Mr. Charles, but if not, you'll be leaving tomorrow morning. That's Matthew describing the day his attorneys told him that he would be leaving prison thanks to the sentencing change in the First Step Act. And I was still like an awestruck, so I don't even know if I responded to that comment. And I ended up leaving January the 3rd at 8.30 that night and got back to Nashville about 10.30 or 11 p.m. Over the course of two decades in prison, Matthew set a remarkable example. He worked as an educational tutor, helping other incarcerated men get their GEDs, and as a law clerk in the law library. Through those studies, he grew his expertise in criminal justice reform. I worked in the law library for close to, I would say, seven to eight years. And during that time, I was able to uh, be abreast of what laws were changing, what motions could be filed, or what cases could possibly help uh, me and others. Another component to the First Step Act is its focus on programming. Here's Julie again. First, I would say that the act recognizes that people in in the Bureau of Prisons should be provided with programming that is both productive 
and also is evidence-based so that when they leave, they will be in a better position to re-enter society than when they began at BOP. And there was a concern that the current system of Bureau of Prisons, while there is some programming, there not, may not be enough, and it may not be well-matched to the needs of the population who are there. And here's Matthew with more on that point. Prior to the First Step Act being passed, a lot of the programs were just still kind of prison-oriented. Uh, they have jobs such as maintenance. They have jobs such as uh, uh, landscape. They have jobs in food service. They have jobs in the educational department, as I said, as an outward. So those jobs necessarily, even though you're learning those skills, they're prison-oriented. But to my understanding, First Step Act allowed them to create or come up with other programs that will be beneficial not only to the people that are taking the programs, but are useful for them once they're released from prison. The First Step Act also creates a new system of earned time credits for people who take part in these programs. Those credits can help them move more quickly from a prison facility to a less restrictive custody arrangement. Here's Julie. And the way the earn time credits work is for those people who are eligible, they can earn up to potentially a third of the time that they work in programming off of their prison time to be served not behind the walls or in facilities, but instead in what's called pre-release custody, which means additional time in halfway houses or in home confinement. Matthew believes that this new opportunity to earn time off gives people in federal prison an incentive to change. Then they're saying, okay, we're willing to invest in you because you're, if you don't have a life sentence or death penalty, you're going to return to society. And when you return to society, we do want you to be a changed person. That was the whole purpose of uh, incarceration. So it actually had the opportunity to not only be rehabilitated, but have your rehabilitation somehow rewarded. It's not like a state, a a gate that's open and just say you can run through it. They're saying, no, we will walk with you if you want us to. And it also reduces some mandatory minimums and expands a judge's ability to get out from under some of them. Here's Nancy. And they do reduce some of the lengthy mandatory minimums uh, for some categories of people who are in the federal system, mostly for people who have repeated drug offenses in their backgrounds. Now, these are meaningful changes in the mandatory minimums, so it gives judges more discretion to give lower sentences, but the sentences are still really very high. So we're talking about reducing a mandatory sentence for a third-degree felony drug offense from 25 years to 20 years. We're still talking about 20 years behind bars. It also expands judges' discretion to impose what's called the safety valve. This is uh, an ability for judges to get out from under these mandatory minimums. And it enables judges to do that under certain circumstances based on low levels of criminal history for certain people. And one last element of the new law is that it will create some opportunities for elderly people and terminally ill people to be released early. Here's Julie. There's the possibility that individuals who are elderly or who are terminally ill may have more of a chance to leave BOP. In the past, that has been a possibility, but the responsibility for that has largely been within the Bureau of Prisons. And with some of these changes, the individuals can petition themselves, and there's the, the chance that more people will, in fact, be able to 
be released. So all told, most of these changes are incremental. And while Nancy, Matthew, and Julie all agree that the First Step Act is historic and a first step in the right direction, there are still areas where future reforms to the criminal justice system will be needed. Here's Julie. There are some very positive, important changes, and lives will be positively affected by them. At the same time, some of the core challenges of the federal sentencing structure, in particular, the way drug mandatory minimum sentences are driven by drug type and quantity, are not directly addressed by this this particular act. For Matthew, more changes are needed to reduce the amount of distance that families have to travel, especially cash-strapped families, to visit their loved ones. So whenever you start to sentence a person, and within that first year, and you separate him from his family, from his wife, from his children, from his siblings, that's a trying period because they're both trying to cope even though the convicted person did commit a crime that he shouldn't be held accountable for. It's just adding an unnecessary uh, weight on him because now you're separating him from his family that he knows is not going to be able to come to see him. They're already trying to come to terms with this person who was, you know, probably providing for their children or trying to provide for their children is no longer going to be out here to be able to do that. But also, we're not even going to be able to see this person. And we know this from the research evidence, too, that people who maintain strong family connections while incarcerated tend to do better on the outside once they're released. Matthew also spoke about easing some of the restrictions that made it harder for people coming out of prison to get jobs. So I would say just the fact that a person locked up feels that once they're released, they're not going to have any more job opportunities because a lot of jobs that are decent enough to where they're able to provide for themselves and their families based on the cost of living is now eliminated because of that felony conviction. And he talked about how important it is for people to have the option of at least six months in a halfway house after their release so they have enough time to try and put some resources together before they're totally on their own again. Well, you take a person who has been incarcerated in a federal prison who has only worked job inside of the federal prison that pays anywhere from 12 to 32 cents per an hour, and the money that this person was making there, he pretty much had to use to pay for his phone calls to his family, to his children, to his friends. So he's being released with literally nothing, and if you deny him six months worth of halfway house time, you're actually putting him into a situation to where he knows he's not going to have the amount of money needed to make it successfully in society. One part of the First Step Act that Nancy and Julie find troublesome is the way that it will be implemented, a lot of which depends on a risk assessment tool that hasn't been built yet. This tool is important because it will be used to assess who qualifies for the programs that are tied to early release. Here's Nancy. Easily the most problematic component of the law is the complex way in which it will be implemented much of which rests on this existence of a yet-to-be-developed risk assessment tool that will be applied to everyone to assess whether they're at high, medium, low, or minimum risk, ideally risk of reoffending, but that wasn't even well explicated in the bill. So the risk assessment tool does not exist yet. 
We don't know what it will look like. We don't know the nature of the algorithms. We don't know what data will be used. And this is problematic because across the country, people are really beginning to scrutinize the use of these risk and needs assessment tools because they can exacerbate racial disparities. And a major problem is that risk assessments can make racial disparities even worse. The fact is that the data that they're using is already implicitly biased because of the bias we, we know exists in the criminal justice system. So, for example, one of the most common predictors of risk of reoffending is criminal history. So how do you end up with uh, a lengthy criminal history? It could be because you're committing crimes, but it also has to do with being caught for committing crimes and the nature of the crimes that you're committing and where you live and the color of your skin. Nancy also offered a concern that the risk assessment tool could limit the amount of people who actually get an opportunity for early release. But in the context of the First Step Act, it's not just the use of this risk assessment tool that's potentially problematic, but the fact that there's this suggestion that the tool is used repeatedly over time to identify people who work their way down the risk level by taking part in programs and treatment. Right. So this suggests that people have these dynamic risk levels that can be discerned to change over time and pretty frequently. And if that doesn't happen, if the tool isn't developed to look at those dynamic factors or if it isn't employed frequently enough to see that people are working their way down the risk levels, then only relatively small share of people will have access to programs that will enable them to be released earlier. As Nancy mentioned, the tool that the First Step Act will rely on has not been developed yet, and the law requires plenty of oversight. There is a provision for an oversight entity that will scrutinize the risk assessment tool, which has to be posted on a website publicly. So not just the oversight entity, but the field at large can look at it and assess it for whether it seems like it's doing what it's intended to doing and not yielding unintended consequences. Another concern is how the programs and treatment will be targeted, which seem to run counter to research evidence. What we know from the literature, the research evidence, is that when you have scarce resources, like money for programs and treatment, the best return on investment is to focus on people who are at medium and high risk. What this legislation does is the exact opposite. It precludes folks at the medium and high risk level from benefiting from the programs, and it prioritizes those programs and treatment for people at the lowest levels, people who arguably would do just fine without any intervention whatsoever. So if this legislation is a first step, a second step might be to better target these programs to those who will get the most out of them. I think the second step would be to align legislation with what we know is evidence-based. And that's tailoring treatment and programs and incentivizing participation in them to folks who need it the most. And, and those are folks who are at medium and high risk. For a third step, Nancy recommends taking another look at people serving excessively long prison sentences who may not benefit much from the First Step Act. So even with the First Step Act, it does reduce some of these very high mandatory minimums, but we're still talking about reductions of 25 years behind bars to 20 years behind bars. That's still an enormous time to be incarcerated. And there's nothing in the literature that suggests that there's an additional public safety benefit from additional five or even 10 or even 15 years in incarceration. So at what point in time 
might we let people go back before the sentencing judge and petition to revisit that sentence? A lot of these folks have been behind bars for so long that there's no risk to society whatsoever. So having a chance to have that second look, I think, could be a second or third step. It's also important to consider some of the more fundamental questions around incarceration and why we send people to prison in the first place. Here's Julie. But I think it would be really beneficial for the federal government to take a harder look at who needs to go to prison, not just how long they need to be in prison, but go back to the fundamental question of who needs to go to prison at all and under what circumstances are there alternatives to incarceration that would better serve the, the individuals and also better serve public safety. I think reserving prison really thinking about it as a very scarce resource and just rethinking when you need it is at the core of, I think, how we're ultimately going to be able to to reform the system. For the final word, let's go back to Matthew, who remains committed to supporting the rehabilitation efforts of those who are still incarcerated. I am also going to continue to speak on behalf of those that are still incarcerated that want to change or want a second chance and want those second chances to be available to them. He says the First Step Act has already brought something new to the federal prison environment, hope. The atmosphere is different, which is good for the inmates and the staff. And it's a lot of people that now have hope in receiving a second chance. They didn't have hope. As always, we'll close with a few key takeaways. One. The First Step Act is the first major federal criminal justice reform bill to pass in decades. And it passed with bipartisan support and with the help of a broad coalition of advocates. Two, elements of the First Step Act include incentives for program participation, the reduction of some mandatory minimums, more discretion for judges, and making the 2010 Fair Sentencing Act retroactive. It's a large and complex law, and much of its success will rest on a risk assessment tool that hasn't been built yet. And three, the First Step Act is just that, a first step. Lawmakers still have their work cut out if the end goal is to truly reduce the federal prison population. As that debate continues, policymakers should carefully consider who needs to go to prison and whether there are alternatives that would better serve public safety. So that's our show. Thanks to Nancy Levine and Julie Samuels. You can find more about their work in the show notes on our webpage, www.urban.org slash critical value. A big thank you to Matthew Charles for spending time to talk with us and to Kevin Ring and Mary Price at Families Against Mandatory Minimums for helping to set up the interview. Hey guys, if you like the show, please tell your friends, tell your neighbors, tell your coworkers. We love getting connected to other smart, policy-minded folks out there. One small request from us, just take a few seconds to rate the podcast on iTunes. We really appreciate it, and it helps other people find this show. We're over 100 reviews right now, which is awesome, and love to keep the momentum going. Thanks to producer Kate Villarreal, Katie Smith for being a rock star, and our sound editor, Riley Byrne from Podigy.co. That's P-O-D-I-G-Y dot C-O. Our theme music is by Moby. For everyone on the Critical Value team, this is Justin Milner signing off.